Well, hello, church. Happy Resurrection Sunday. I hope you are well and celebrating in the Lord today. Today we celebrate and remember the most important event in history and the very center point of Christian belief for 2,000 years. Any description of what we believe as Christians without the central claim of the resurrection as an actual historical event is insufficient and in fact unfaithful. Look at what the apostle Paul said when summarizing the central belief of the faith to the Corinthian church. Now this church was very confused, struggling along, and Paul said, I want to remind you what's of of first importance. And so friends, if you're joining us today as a guest, you're watching this online or you're in one of our congregations enjoying this service today and you're not sure you believe in Jesus Christ or in Christianity or in the teachings of the church, here's how we would boil down what is of first importance. Here's what you've got to get your head and your heart around first and foremost. Here's what Paul says. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What is this word? Well, Paul's going to unpack it. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is, the essence of the Christian faith, that Christ died for your sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, which of course is a a euphemism for they, they have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Don't miss it, friends. Paul was making first and foremost a claim of history, not purely one of philosophy or even primarily one of morality or ethic. He is saying that an actual event is at the heart of Christian belief. Here's the event. Jesus really died. His death really had a purpose. The scripture says, for our sins. He was really buried, which is big, and then he really rose from the dead and really appeared to a number of eyewitnesses, up to 500 at a time. And and Paul says, this is according to the scriptures. What that phrase means is that the collective writings of the scriptures for thousands of years, up until that point was pointing to the need we had for divine rescue and the ultimate act of divine defeat of death that God was gonna send in his son, Jesus Christ. Friends, does the Bible confuse you? It confuses me some days, but what this means is the death and resurrection of Jesus is the essence of what the scriptures are about. The scriptures wrap themselves around this claim as the very center point that holds them all together. In fact, friends, the apostle Paul is gonna say later in the same chapter that if the resurrection isn't true, then Christians are the saddest and lamest 
and dumbest people on the planet. Now, if you're a guest here today, that may be the one and only point you end up agreeing with today. You can say amen. It's probably best to say it inwardly um, in your heart at this point because you might go sad and lame and dumb. Yeah, that looks about right. But the truth is, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then these gatherings we sit in today, then you spending time engaging with the scriptures on Easter Sunday is an absolute foolish waste of time because without the real tangible historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ everything else in Christianity falls apart but with it as an historical event right at the center then the rest of what we believe can hold and sustain even when it's tested against whatever opposition it comes up against in whatever culture it faces If you have grown up, though, in church and in Christian thinking, it's easy to forget how extraordinary this claim is. It is a remarkable thing to believe that a dead man rose from the grave after spending three days there. A man whose body had been so broken by crucifixion's cruelty that he was unrecognizable somehow got resurrected and was then seen by hundreds of others on multiple occasions. And he was seen in incredibly good shape. This wasn't like a walking dead sort of scenario. This wasn't a weekend at Bernie's kind of setup where they were taking a bloodied and battered Jesus who was not in good shape around and saying, no, no, look, I promise you he's fine. No, no, he arrives in, in good shape in a new body. And Christians actually believe that that is literally literally true. It's not some metaphor pointing to, oh, we all must rise from our own experience of adversity. No, we believe he bodily rose from the adversity of death. And so friends, when some of my unbelieving friends want to talk about how a seemingly otherwise sensible chap like myself can believe in the supernatural events of the Bible, I always tell them uh, th- that they need to start with the most remarkable of all those events. And so I had a friend a couple of weeks ago who was going, I- I'm quite drawn to the teachings of Christ, but I can't believe in Noah's Ark. Right? I can't believe that every known creature went two by two onto the ark and they didn't eat each other and they somehow made it out intact with the giraffe's head sticking out of the front window. They somehow all managed to, 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 to make it through the flood. I can't believe that story was true. And he said, can you? I said, I've got no problem believing the story of Noah's Ark. He said, how? I mean, you went to university. How can you believe that story? I said, because it pales in comparison to the claim of the resurrection. If the resurrection is true, if we can get our minds around that big one, then all the rest of them are easy to believe because it shows a God who intervenes in the natural order and does as he pleases with all the power that he has. Oh, friends, we celebrate a big claim today. Most people believe that Jesus lived. History tells us he was crucified. You won't find many historians who would refute the claim that his death took place and that it caused some sort of uprising in Jerusalem at that time in history. But that he rose from the dead, that's a big claim. So big, in fact, that at some point we decided that we would need a bunny and some chocolate to soften the blow. And I'm eternally grateful for some of those additions. But because it is such a big claim, It would be foolish of us 
to believe or to assume that everyone watching this sermon today believes this claim. It would be equally foolish to think that everyone who follows Christ finds it easy to believe the claim of the resurrection every day. But, and this is significant, it would also be foolish for us to think that the first hearers believed it without any sort of evidence. You see, the scriptures tell us that the first believers in the resurrection weren't instantly convinced. They too started as cynics. They thought the bodily resurrection of Jesus wasn't possible. Even some of those who saw him themselves, look at what Matthew 28, 16 and 17 says. I love this text. They've been with the resurrected Christ. It says, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, there he is, resurrected. He was very much dead. Now he's very much alive. They worshiped him, but some doubted. Some are like, Nah, I mean, I'm not sure that this is the real deal. Look at what Luke 24 says. It says it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, these faithful female witnesses, these wonderful women, integral in the building of the early church, these faithful followers of Jesus Christ. They, they are still attentive to what is going on. And the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, the guys who should have been leading out. But these words seemed to them what? An idle tale. And they did not believe them. And so friends, very briefly today, I wanna press into this massive claim of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from two angles. Firstly, I wanna look back really briefly and ask, why do we believe that it did happen. If it's such a big claim, if it wasn't even believed by some of the first witnesses, why do we believe that it did happen? And then I want to just look forward and ask ourselves, well, if we do believe that it happened, what implications does it have for us today once we have that belief? First, let's look at, did it happen? I want to look at the reality of the resurrection. Is this a real event in history? No, no, no. Listen to this as a, as a warning. An essential part of what it means to be a Christian is to have faith, right? That means that there is a point when we just have to set our minds and hearts and souls on some truths that we cannot fully see or explain or understand. We are warned by the text that we just read about how some of the first followers, even though they saw some stuff, still didn't believe it. We need faith. That, that's absolutely essential. But that doesn't mean that there isn't reason or evidence behind what we believe. There'll always be a gap for faith, but it isn't always as blind a leap as we let on. And so today, let's just look briefly at one line of historical evidence for the resurrection, a line that, that I find so compelling, and that is the eyewitnesses of the event. There are only one line of evidence. There are many other lines, but they present some very interesting questions to us that we must answer, and I believe that we should answer with faith in Jesus Christ. Once we've done that, then I want to zoom in on one of those eyewitnesses and see what he says it went on to mean for him as implications. All right, the eyewitnesses, what is so persuasive about these eyewitnesses and, and what is it that leads me to believe that they show that it's actually a reliable historical account that says that Jesus rose from the dead? First of all, it's their number. There were so many of them. Paul says there were over 500 who saw the resurrected Christ. Now, if you know anything at all about trying a case 
You know, that eyewitness testimony is a problematic thing. Why? People normally don't remember things that well. And so one of the ways that you can bolster eyewitness testimony is if you can get a few eyewitnesses to say the same thing, then you end up getting a bit of a slam dunk case. If you can get a few eyewitnesses who say the same thing and who stand up under cross-examination, then it's as good as done, right? Then that thing really happened. Paul says, there's 500. Most of them are still alive for cross-examination. What's he doing? He's inviting the skeptic. He's saying, go ask them. Go ask them. I can point them out to you. I know them. I know where they live. I know what they'll say. Go ask them. They'll all say the same thing. He isn't just saying, hey, a long time ago in a galaxy far away, a remarkable tale took place, and you just believe in it by faith. He's saying, no, no, ask Jeff, right? He was there. Jeff, come on over. And he comes on over, and he says, oh, do you saw the resurrected Christ? He said, I absolutely did. And he changed your life? He absolutely changed my life. And so Paul invites this kind of interrogation of the witnesses. Friends, can you imagine in a trial, lining up not one, not two, not 12, 500 witnesses who all say, I'm telling you now, I saw Jesus Christ alive and well. Their sheer number start to create a compelling case. Secondly, what about these, the, the, these witnesses is their nature. They are very unlikely eyewitnesses that you would want to bring to a trial. They are very unlikely apologists for a new worldview in every way, shape, and form. Think about who they were. This is a ragtag bunch. And so if you were just trying to form a new religion off of which you were trying to create dominance and control of a doctrinal structure, what, you would do, what would you do? You would get the highest elite and you would pay them and you would corrupt them and they would be your eyewitnesses because then people would have to believe them. That's not the case with Christianity. You get some of the weakest eyewitnesses uh, available to them at the time. But that weakness might actually be a strength. You see, because Jesus appears to people who wouldn't have been recognized as important or reliable in the culture. He appears to fishermen and tax collectors and women who couldn't testify in a trial and his former enemies. And he appears to them and then sends them forward as the evangelists of this new way. Friends, if this was a wicked conspiracy, right, and a ploy by Rome to gain control, what we need is a resurrected Christ to, who, who then becomes messianic because then we can have a state-implemented religion. This is, this is the counter-argument that we so often hear today. They would have changed the accounts that had Jesus appearing to women, for sure. But they don't. Why? Because it actually happened. Now, don't you love the grace and the goodness of God who includes all of societies and cultures, rejected ones, despised ones, belittled ones, and then places them as the central stewards of the greatest story ever told. It's bananas and it's wonderful and it's true. In addition, you see some remarkable people come to faith, people who would have had to overturn their entire worldview in order to claim that the resurrection was true. Saul, Saul is a persecutor of the church. He has to walk away from everything he had known 
to, to become a, an evangelist and an apologist for the Christian church. His passionate subsequent mystery required something significant that upended his life. He had to walk away from everything and everyone that he loved. Why? He saw the resurrected Christ. He saw him. Can you imagine that event? Walking along the road on his way to persecute Christians. He goes blind. He has a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's like, oh, don't say you, Jesus. Don't say you, Jesus. Don't say you, Jesus. Who are you? Jesus. Darn it, right? I'm a Christian now. I can't believe it. And now he has to go and follow this Messiah who he had previously said was, was anathema and wicked and evil is now his Lord. Why would he change like that? He sees him. He sees him. Well, what about James? Would it take a miracle for the brother of Jesus Christ to claim that he was the son of God? I've got two older brothers. You know what it would take for me to believe that they're actually divine? A resurrection. Nothing short, right? Because I've seen them. I've walked with them. We're told that his family doubts even in his ministry. But suddenly when he's resurrected, they're like, oh, my goodness. Oh my goodness, my Lord and my King, he's the one. It's, it's incredible for us to consider. He also appears to Peter. Peter who had given up in despondency and was going back to fishing. He then goes on to be a brave frontier leader in the church. Why? He saw Jesus. He saw him and it changed everything. Uh, uh, more importantly, though, well, as importantly, at least, in terms of their natures, unlikely, is what their worldview said was actually possible about resurrection. Here's what we do. We can go like, yeah, but these were simple folk, right? No, these were simple folk. These were Bible times. They weren't that smart. And we can be patronizing to ancient cultures. We do it all the time. It's called chronological arrogance. We could easily say that they could easily become confused because they only saw what they wanted to see. But none of them, friends, none of them would have had a worldview that would have desired to see a dead man resurrected in bodily form. None of them thought it was possible or desirable. You see, the Jews were split between those who believed in no resurrection at all and those who believed in a nebulous, ghostly spirit dwelling. Uh, those who believed in a resurrection believed that it was a once-off event at the end of all things, when all people would be raised together. And so if you told a Jew that Jesus rose from the dead, they would see it as absolutely impossible. Why? The world still existed. They would need to drop everything they had believed for their entire lives in order to accommodate that view. And they did. Why? They saw him. My third thing about the witnesses, and then I'll move on to some implications, was their no-win motivation. And this is big for me because I know in my heart I'm, I'm selfish in my actions. I, I tend to only act when there's something in it for me. It's, it's wicked and depraved and the Spirit's working um, on it in me. But I know it's true for some of us as well. But none of these people gained anything through claiming that they'd seen the resurrection Christ, the, the resurrected Christ. None of them became loved, respected, or rich for their belief in the resurrection Paul would go on to describe themselves as the refuse of the world, as the scum of the earth. Friends, while we see lots of people getting rich off of Christianity and its claims today, these eyewitnesses lost all they had because of their testimony. Most of them went on to grisly deaths that could have been easily avoided if they simply gave up on their certainty that they had seen the resurrected Jesus. Peter springs to my mind here so much. 
Uh, Paul goes out of his way to say that Jesus appeared to Peter. Why? Well, because Peter so publicly betrayed Christ. And then Jesus in his kindness chooses him for leadership in the early church. But Peter must have felt like such a fraud. He must have known that his failures were recorded and widely known in and amongst the disciples. He must have wanted to disappear to a life of obscurity. That's what I would have done, but he couldn't. Why? He saw the resurrected Christ. He saw him and it changed everything about him. And so he goes on to turn the world upside down. Peter, the guy who was scared of a teenage girl not long before, goes on, we're told, to death by crucifixion, probably next to his wife, refusing to recant. Why? He saw his Lord. And for Peter, that shaped him, it molded him, it changed him, it changed the trajectory of his life. Seeing him went on to mean so much. If Jesus walked out of the grave, then it changed everything about his future. And Peter records this much later in his life as he gets closer to his death. He writes some epistles and look what he writes about 30 years after the effect, after the fact of the resurrection, still sure, still sure that he saw his friend alive and well. Here's the wondrous result of the resurrection of Jesus. Look at what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter one from verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Remember what Peter was like before? But here he is, laying it all on the line as a much older man, a man who has been through so much for his belief and continues to persevere and now calls a persecuted church in, in the context to persevere. Why? Because the resurrection changed him and it should change us. And so very briefly, with the little bit of time that I have left here today, let's look at some of the implications of the resurrection. I started with a list that was dozens long. I just boiled it down to seven for today, uh, and you're welcome for the grace that you're receiving in that. Seven implications of the resurrection. If this remarkable claim is true, so what? Uh, what does it change? Well, let's start with some of the things that Peter told us as we look at the results of the resurrection. Firstly, we have the certainty of a merciful God who acts with power to save us. We have the certainty of a merciful God who acts with power to save us. Look again at what Peter says. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, that's where this comes from, he has caused us. Look at the agent, look who's acting here. He has caused us to be born again. According to what? According to his great mercy. To what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is so helpful for us today. The death and the resurrection of Christ is the ultimate collision of God's power and God's mercy. And if we're going to be saved and we really need to be saved, then we need both God's mercy and God's power. We need his power that we see here because we know that we cannot save ourselves. I know, I've given up on that endeavor long ago. 
but look at how he is the initiator and powerful actor in our rebirth. I'm so grateful for this. He has caused us to be born again through the resurrection. He intervenes in the natural order. He intervenes in history. Why? To save us, to rescue us. He comes after us. He causes it. We couldn't do it. We probably wouldn't even have wanted to. And so God acts. He sends his son. He empowers his life. He allows him to go to death on a cross. And then he resurrects him from the dead in power by his sovereign grace. Now, some of you might go, I don't like a sovereign God like that. That seems to impact on some of my agency and humanity in some way if I think it through. But Peter says, no, 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 friends, look at the context of it. It's all according to his great mercy. It's an act of power to be sure, but it's an act of powerful divine mercy. And this is excellent news for exhausted religious souls trying desperately to save themselves. How many of you are in church today or watching this broadcast? Because you're trying to just be better. You've realized, oh, I shouldn't do some of the stuff that I do. I should do some stuff that I don't do. And so I want to be better. That means I've got to go back to church. Easter would be a good Sunday. Let's go. Praise God for that impulse. But I want you to hear this. What you need is not to do better. What you need is his mercy. You need his grace. You need his power at work in your life to save you. And then he can change you and make you more and more like his son. Friends, God is powerful enough to save you, even you, even you. If you can save Saul, if you can save Peter, even you, he's powerful enough to save you. And listen, God is merciful enough to save you, even you. What a thought. And this mercy is secured in the resurrection. I saw this powerfully played out at my dining room table on Good Friday evening. I was trying to just take a moment to disciple my kids and remind them about the importance of the message of Good Friday. And I could see my beloved son Daniel getting upset at the thought that Jesus died for his sins. And then I could see him cowering, not just in grief, but also in guilt. And I had to stop and intervene and speak to him and say, hey buddy, according to his great mercy, he also caused Christ to be resurrected from the dead. If the whole story, as amazing as it would be on its own, but if the whole story was that Jesus died for our sins, it would leave us grief-stricken and bound to our guilt. But in power and in mercy, he was raised so that we can be certain of his grace and of his love and of his mercy and of his power available to save sinners like us. Second one. We have the possibility of a new life. Once we are saved, then we have the possibility of change. Peter's language for what a life of faith in Jesus looks like is the same language he heard from Jesus himself. How does he describe it? We are born again to a living hope. This is actually what so many of us are striving for in all of our various self-improvement exercises. And I know we have many of them. We know that we are not who we were made to be. The power of the gospel is that we can, by the power of God's spirit and the mercy of God, begin to be our true selves again. We can be born again to new life because Christ defeated death and the curse of sin, which makes us less and less like we are supposed to be. 
This is what Paul said in Romans 6, and this is important right across our congregations today. People are gonna get baptized. This is the picture that they're painting. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We're united with him in his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too, listen, Walk in newness of life. Isn't that phenomenal? That's the promise. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. The great news is that the resurrection doesn't just demand a new life from us. It also empowers a new life for us. Now, Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Friends, this is so great because you know what this is not? This is not just, oh, one day we'll make it to heaven and it'll be fine. This is here and now stuff. This same spirit that raised Jesus now resurrects us to a new life in the here and now. How many of you have stumbled in here today? Exhausted with yourself and with your own failures, wondering if you will ever actually change, feeling like you're stuck in the death that is sin. Remember, remember, if you're a Christian, you are united to Christ and he, whoo, he rose from the dead and he is resurrecting you even now by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep going. His work isn't finished in you, friend. Third one, we have a future to look to beyond the grave. Uh, Peter says that because of the resurrection, Jesus has won for us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, I don't have one of these because my parents are busy spending my inheritance. It's quite reckless to watch, actually. But how differently do you live when you know that you have a big inheritance coming for you, right? In the way that it works in the world, it isn't always a positive thing, but it certainly has an impact. People live with a freedom and a security, even with a, a risk um, when they know, oh, well, I get to win all of this stuff in the end. How differently and more freely should Christians be able to steward all that we have in this life, everything we are, everything that's given to us, when we know that there is so much more waiting for us, when we know that we win in the end? We forget to live in light of eternity so often, don't we? A remembrance of the resurrection helps us to orient our life around the true life that awaits us when we die. And we will die. And listen, then we will be resurrected. It's unbelievable. Jesus is the, 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 the forerunner. He's the prototype. He's the one who goes before and gives us a resurrection life. And look what this inheritance is like. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Why? Because it's no ordinary inheritance. Why? Because the holder of the inheritance is still alive. Usually an inheritance is left to you by someone who has died and they give it to you that's something, as something that you can have in lieu of their presence. They're dead, so you can't have them anymore. And so they give you their stuff. But this is different, this inheritance. Why? The giver is alive. And so he isn't just saying, have my stuff. He's saying, you still get to have me. That's why it's imperishable and undefiled and unfading because Jesus is imperishable. 
and undefiled and unfading and still available to us today because he was resurrected from the dead. Oh, friends, I don't have time. I don't have time. I don't have time. But this has to change the way that we see death. And it has to change the way that we see life. In the life that we have, however long it might be, we should be able to live with a supernatural freedom, knowing that when death comes, it's okay, because we can die with boldness and certainty because of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians, this helps us even to process the death of others. If Jesus wasn't raised, Paul says, then the dead are just dead. And then this life, well, it's cruel and cold and largely meaningless. But if the dead are raised, then we can cherish their lives and mourn, but not as those without hope. Oh, I know that many of you on this kind of holiday weekend are missing some people who are gone. Just yesterday, our family got the news of a precious loved one. My dad, one of my dad's closest friends and the father of one of my closest friends uh, died in Johannesburg, South Africa. And my heart was instantly just aching, knowing, oh, I'll never see him again in this life. Was, oh, I wish I could see him again. He was the most encouraging man. He used to come straight up after I preached, even when I was garbage, which was most of the time, and just give me a huge hug. And he would just call me little but, which means little brother in Afrikaans, and just tell me that he loved me and that he was proud of me and that I was doing a great job. And so when I heard of his passing yesterday, oh, there was the sting of death. But then as I stopped, I thought, oh my goodness, he's face to face with his Lord oh, then I don't mourn like the world, then I have hope and a certainty that one day we'll be reunited with him and that right now he is experiencing that inheritance. What a joy. He wouldn't swap it for the world. See how it changes? Changes the perspective. Fourth one, I've got to go fast. We have the ability to rejoice in the midst of trial and suffering. Look at what Peter says in some verses that follow this text from today. He says, in this you rejoice, the resurrection, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, nowhere in the scriptures, nowhere, does it say that being a believer in Jesus will help us to escape difficulty? In fact, it promises us that it will probably attract difficulty if we do it right. But it also offers us a way to endure and to thrive in the midst of the most difficult things. We've looked at some of those already. But if you experience poverty, well, you, you, you endure it by remembering you have an inheritance waiting. You experience sickness, well, we don't have to fear death, and so we can walk through it faithfully. If you experience death itself, well, we can mourn, but not like those who, who don't have the certainty of heaven. If you experience rejection, well, we have a resurrected advocate with the Father who offers us the certainty of a loving reception forevermore. You see, it changes stuff. It changes how we can endure. I love what D.A. Carson said. He said, there is nothing I can suffer that a good resurrection <laughs> can't fix. You see, friends, our sufferings are real. And when we go through them, their impact is very real in the way that they describe us in periods of our lives. But they should no longer define us. Why? God is working on something else, something resurrective, something that will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fifth one, I'm nearly done. Some of you feel like you need a resurrection right now. I understand. Fifth one, we have an anchor for our faith. We have something to hold on to in the dark night of the soul. I've said it before, but it's so true. 
If the resurrection is true, then the rest holds together. Even Paul says it, hey, without it, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, the rest is just a bunch of baloney. But if it's true, then all of it holds. I walk with a lot of people, it's one of my great privileges. I walk with a lot of people who are wrestling with their faith, questioning it, doubting it, deconstructing it, wonder if they should walk away from it. When I ask them what's going on, they usually have objections to the way the faith is being acted out in the world, or, which are fair objections, or to difficulties with doctrines they don't agree with, which I understand, or, or more recently church leaders who have failed to live like the king that they claim to love has, has shipwrecked their faith, and I understand. But friends, those things ought not to be the source, source of our faith in the first place. And so the loss of them ought not to erode our faith. Here's what you must ask yourself. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If so, the rest will be fine. If not, don't worry about any of it. Sixth one, we have an authority to obey. You might go, I don't want an authority to obey, obey but we actually all do. I've got this saying that I say every Easter Sunday. I say it to my kids. They're like, Dad, you're so lame. You've got to come up with better sayings. But it's a simple, life-changing reality that we just put on our whiteboard every Easter Sunday. It says, the one who walks out of the grave gets to call the shots. It's just my annual reminder that this house submits to Jesus because he's the resurrected king. The one who walks out of the grave gets to call the shots. You see, friends, we're all actually on a quest to discover who has authority. Who tells us the truth? Who should we follow? Who should we believe? Well, the resurrection allows us to anchor truth to something more secure than the tyranny of shifting culture. And trust me, it is tyrannous. And the misery of subjective experience. And trust me, it is miserable. If you're gonna be your own authority, that is a sure and certain road to misery. If your truth defines how you should act all the time, or what happens when your truth changes, or when society says that it's no longer bearable, you need something to hold on to. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the one that says, then I believe everything Jesus said because he walked out of the grave. And now I follow him even when it's unpopular. Why? He walked out of the grave. Last one, implication of the resurrection. We, followers of Jesus, can and must have a genuine living hope. Friends, when we look at the world, there's many reasons to give into hopelessness. That ought not to be an option for Christians. We are called to be people who are born again. And born again to what? To a living hope. We have a living hope, why? Because the source of our hope is alive. This is big in the here and now. Coming out of the trauma of 2020 and knowing that 2021 hasn't actually been smashing either, right? But because of the resurrection, Christians believe that God has begun his new creation on earth, even here, even now. And his people get to be the heralds and the ambassadors of that new creation, pointing to its existence and possibility. I love something that I read from N.T. Wright just this morning. It won't be up on the screen because I just read it this morning. But he spoke about this. He said, the post-pandemic world needs the real Easter message, the message of a new creation, which began when Jesus was raised from the dead. A new heaven and earth reality energized by God's powerful new breath surging through Jesus' followers, turning them to their own surprise and in some cases alarm into a multicultural outward facing community determined to be the good news the world so obviously needed, end quote. We're born again to a living hope. One of my favorite old hymns is a hymn called Because He Lives. 
The chorus simply says, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, yes, I know that he holds the future. Then life is worth the living. Why? Just because he lives. Happy Resurrection Sunday, friends. It is a reality. It's a true event. It took place. It has real and tangible results for us today. The call then for us today is the same call that's been made for 2,000 years. Put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died for us, the one who is surely raised for us, the one who is coming again for us. May we, his people, be people who have been born again to a living hope. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And that, quite simply, changes everything. Would you pray with me? (laughs) So, Father God, that's so much for us to get our heads and hearts around, but I pray that you give us supernatural ability to do it. Won't you even now, through your Spirit, be resurrecting us, Father, into new life, born again to a living hope. Lord, I pray firstly for those who have watched a broadcast or sat in a Sunday service at the Stone this year who, who don't know you. They may have even been around Christian things and church things for many years, but have never placed their hope in the resurrected Christ. Oh, Holy Spirit, won't you resurrect them today? Friend, if that's you right where you are, <laughs> you can receive Christ as, uh, as your Lord and Savior. You can tell him that you believe in him. You can do that right now, wherever you are, regardless of how you've been doing, regardless of how good you've been, you can say, but I believe that you died for me and I believe that you rose again. If, you, if you're able to say those words, it's because the Spirit gave you power to say them. Yeah, you can pray that and join his family. So Father, I want you by the Spirit, just win people now to you. Just draw them into the faith. Compel them. Help them to see the resurrected Christ, to know him and to never be the same. Lord, for those who have been walking with you, for a long time, but have been beaten down in their hope. Oh, Lord, resurrect their living hope today by the powerful Holy Spirit. Encourage them, embolden them, empower them, enliven them, and then give them great joy so that we could go out and be your ambassadors in this very needy time and place. Lord, we love you. We love you. Help us to anchor our faith on your resurrected son and help us to follow him as best we can with living hope for all of our days. He is risen, Father, and for that we thank you. It's in his name we pray, amen.